Breakers. I am Mike Senior, and I am here with antisocial stick hoarder John Witten <laughs> for the 25th episode of Project Studio Tea Break. You just don't run out of those, do you? Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I've ever been introduced as, as loving son, as loyal father. I haven't actually got kids, but it's a plan. Aspirational loving father. So have you been panic buying sticks? I have been. I don't know how you knew. I've been very quiet about it on social media so as to not cause too much of a rush on them. Um, but I have just a huge number of sticks now. So if you need any, check out my Amazon sellers page. <laughs> no, the thing is, the Germans in general are quite literal about their use of terminology. <laughs> but one of the terms I like most in the German language has been used a lot recently, mm-hmm. which is effectively, if you were going to translate it directly into English, it's too hamster. Mike, you are far more advanced in your study of the German language than I, and I've got to confess, I haven't actually come across this one before. What on earth does it mean <laughs> oh, to have it's, it's so established as a term that the Bavarian information posters mm. say nicht hamstern. So don't hamster, it says <laughs> on the posters. Just imagine if you were driving through central London and there was a big billboard that said, don't hamster. <laughs> no, be, you would turn around and go straight back home. You'd be concerned. But basically, it's like, you know when hamsters eat? Oh. They eat more than they need and fill their cheeks. <laughs> I do. So it's basically the German way of saying, don't hoard and panic buy. Right. What an adorable expression. It's gorgeous, isn't it? Absolutely child-friendly, pastoral, beautiful expression for a terrible, terrible action. <laughs> and actually, this... Weirdly, this relates to my uh, face palm this month. This is to do with choral singing. And while I was looking through sheet music to remind myself which bit of choral music this related to, mm. I found in the margin of one of my bits of sheet music a direction that I remember the choir master making. Okay. He said, sing this like you're stroking a gerbil. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's something very synchronicitous about the world at the moment. Brilliant new word. Now, you joke, but actually, I use that gerbil thing when I lead choirs. You do? I do. You'll fill me in then. It's incredibly useful. You get choirs who will not sing quiet for love nor money, but what Ah. you do, you have them imagine a gerbil and you have them put it right next to their face and then they're singing to the gerbil. Mm. And if it goes too loud, then the gerbil dies. (laughs) Is is my my own little twist on it. This is the kind of canary in a coal mine thing of choral singing. But God, I wonder how that one spread. Because let's see, I learned that from Joss, what's his name? Joss Sanders. Joss Sanders, absolutely. He did the gerbil. I don't know who he took it from. I wonder how long it's been around. Was Bach saying to his singers? Well, it was Julian Smith who said it to me back when I was at school. Right. So that's like 70 years ago already. Like this has some heritage. <laughs> so have you earned your tea break this month, John? Not really. <laughs> like, I, uh, This is where the non-visual medium of podcasting loses something, because that face was priceless. (laughs) (laughs) I am doing my bit for Queen and Country. I'm actually holed up in the UK at the moment, as our our, our glorious and brave leader Boris Johnson has suggested. I'm staying at home and not doing much. The, the, The upsides are, at this point, I am completely unemployed for the foreseeable future because all theatre projects everywhere have been cancelled, which is much better than six months ago when I was completely unemployed for the foreseeable future because no one wanted me or what I do. (laughs) So in that way, this is a real step up. There's a sense of validation. Absolutely there is. No, So I have been tending the garden. I fixed a fence a couple of days ago. I'm looking after chickens, trying to train them to stand on my hand. That is actually true. We have chickens. 
So no, but I'm going to have it anyway. Yeah. That's what I'm going to go for. How about you, Mike? Have you earned your tea break? Well, you've got plenty of time for the tea break. I have. In fact, I've made it a special tea break for us. There are cucumber sandwiches. Oh, lovely. There are scones. Oh, wow. Six different types of tea. Now, I noticed you came out with scones there. You're not a scones person. No, I say it right. You say it right, yeah. Worth checking. You see, I, I've never said scones either, but there have been battle lines drawn for less. It's true. And, you know, when the... Dirty scone sayers want to step two. I'll be ready um, from a safe two meter distance. Are you a jam first or a cream first person? You know, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> you see, that's another deep and bitter divide. I am absolutely a jam first person. I see. Having only just thought about it, I now have a very strong opinion <laughs> colon the internet story. Like all the best opinions. <laughs> yes. So absolutely jam first, mm. because that way the jam soaks into the scone and the cream can go on top. If you put the cream on first, you're basically waterproofing the delicious baked treat underneath. Mm, mm. And then the jam will just slide off like jam off a duck's back. Never have we been of one mind <laughs> as much as... <laughs> and thankfully it's on such a world-altering subject as... Scone pronunciation and, and, and condiment order. Mm. Welcome everyone to our music technology, music production, <laughs> music culture podcast. Um, have you earned your tea break? Mike, dodging my question, I'm going to Paxman you. Answer the question. Yeah, I have definitely have been earning my tea break this month. It's just yep. everything's mad at the moment. There's loads of stuff going on with my, my Cambridge MT site. I'm trying to get a mastering side onto my Multitrack library. I cannot wait to check that out. Yeah, so I can scarcely squeeze this tea break in. It feels like you've earned it for both of us, which I do appreciate. Mm. Carrying me through once again. Oh, and I have some excellent follow-up from last month's copyright discussion. Oh, yes. There was another absolutely corking bit of copyright nonsense that I discovered the other day Oh yeah. via the Sound on Sound Mix review column. Okay. There was that huge Medusa hit called Peace of Your Heart mm. which has the, to be honest a brilliant production moment where all of a sudden the track stops and he goes, uh, uh, wait a minute uh, how about it's and then goes, da 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 Yeah, he does that, yeah, right? Head-shakingly good. Incidentally, I wouldn't have known this song by name, but if you hear 10 seconds of it, you will recognise it. Yeah. And they recently released a follow-up single <laughs> called Lose Control, and pretty much photocopied that riff. <laughs> the da 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 It's incredible. And the thing is, when you put it in the context of the Adam Neely discussion, and you see how someone was able to win a court case on such small musical features. Mm. And then you look at something like that that is absolutely bang to rights, a rip-off of the same kind of <laughs> musical idea and delivery and everything, but done by the same person. I was going to say, you're copyright infringing yourself. And it just brings up all sorts of weird thoughts like, well, what happens if those two tracks get licensed to different production companies? Oh, that, oh, yes, please. <laughs> Could they end up having to sue themselves. <laughs> Let's live in that future. That, that's a bright light up ahead of the tunnel. The slightly more worrying thing is that, you know how for ages, EDM tracks have been like put out to remixes, to do remixes? Mm -hmm. Well, I wonder whether now they're going to start putting tracks out to kind of be rehooked. Oh my God. Where they basically take the same musical material and then they do like four different versions that are pretty much the same thing, 
But because they're from the same artist, they can't sue each other. So they have their first hit, and then they do various really, really derivative versions. As with all crazy, ridiculous, impractical ideas, the internet has got there before us. <laughs> and in fact, the artist I am featuring in my jam segment today, Stick Around Audience, does exactly that. <laughs> oh, I won't fabulous. say more just now, but, but what Brilliant. you just plucked from the fever depths of your imagination <laughs> is out there. It's real, and it's oh, pretty wow. cool. It's pretty awesome. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> and furthermore, despite all the bleak news in the world today, we have cause for celebration. Oh, do we now? We do. Because this month we have not one, but two new patrons. Heavens above. Above, I'm getting a helicopter. Or one of those kind of outside jacuzzis? I think I will get an outside jacuzzi on my helicopter. <laughs> for, for podcast business, to be clear. like To take us to podcast summits in the Dolomites. Yeah, I mean, there's certain acoustic properties you only get in an airborne jacuzzi. <laughs> <laughs> so, welcome, Barry and Nick. Barry and Nick, hello. Our new breakers. Now, I'm excited to have them on board. Mm. I cannot wait for them to uh, be part of our community, fully integrated. But what I need to know, Mike, mm. what you know I need to know, <laughs> how's that pole looking? Where's it sitting? Uh, how do you know that I checked just before we came online? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, I think these are oh. in a new spirit of communal love. You're and... smiling. I don't like it. You're happy. This is awful. <laughs> they have both abstained from the fray. Oh. So far. Yeah, they've left it at two all. They're, I think they're biding their time. I mean, maybe this is the point where we need to make our pitch. Okay. Yeah, perhaps. Barry, you can have a lift in my helicopter. <laughs> Nick, you can use my jacuzzi. Nick, you can have my helicopter. <laughs> I, I need this. I raise you a helicopter. <laughs> okay, well, you know, it's been a while since we've actually made our case yeah. for or against this magnificent composer. Mm. So what about if we just kind of go toe-to-toe -to -toe real quick? and remind people why they should you know, vote for me or be dead inside. Okay, if you want the pocket guide to Ludovico and Audi, basically stick down an open fifth in the bass and play pentatonic drivelings over the top <laughs> with the sustain pedal gaffer taped down. <laughs> and if you could do it while being filmed on an iceberg, it makes it even better. That was one time. <laughs> Just the one iceberg. You never let it go. Yeah, exactly. No, okay, so it, it's true. It's true. It's possible to take a smug intellectual distance away from art and kind of say, oh, it's all just flashing images. I know how that's done, so it can't touch me. Mm. And for some people, that sort of tough, atrophied shell is useful and it's necessary. Mm. Mm. For other people who appreciate this Italian composer born 23rd of November 1955, <laughs> who trained... What's more, at the Conservatorio Verdi in Milan... This comes from the Trump School of Autocue reading, surely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you want to... Do you want to know about his early life and education? His music career? Further references? Like, there's so much to say. But at the end of the day, you just go and listen to L'Onde or Primavera or... To be honest, any of them, they're all pretty similar. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, there's the admission! <laughs> <laughs> don't kill the lily don't mess with the working system it's all very very beautiful piano music if you like Chopin then you'll enjoy Iron Audi do you think he could sue himself for copyright <laughs> <laughs> Now it's time for the news. 
As most of our news stories do, this one starts in 1697. <laughs> in 1697, King Louis XIV, who, as you know, was the King of France at the time... Well, yeah, but just theoretically, in case there's someone listening who maybe wasn't paying attention quite as much as they should have in history class... <laughs> anyone, anyone who wasn't on board, King Louis had begun his life as a huge fan of the Italians and then had been turned by various macro-national forces anti-Italian, but that's not important. All you need to know is that in 1697, he closed the Italian theatre in France, leaving all the Italian performers out of work. Okay. These were consumer actors. These were the forefathers of Commedia dell'arte. These are big deal people. Yeah. So where they went, they went to the fairground. They went to the circus. Okay. And they they took their audience with them. And these circus theatre shows became so popular Mm. that the National Theatre of France took notice and then took offence and then sometimes even had to shut down of an evening because they couldn't get enough people in (laughs) because everyone was at the circus. Wow. Seeing these Italian plays. Fabulous. So they did what any self respecting theatre institution would do, and rather than trying to up their game Mm. or win the audience back, they went to court. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. And they achieved the outright prohibition of performances of plays and farces in 1703, so that's six years later. Mm. And the Italians weren't phased by this. They just replaced their whole plays with detached scenes, they did sketch shows instead. Right. So in 1704, one year later, all dialogue was legally prohibited. <laughs> so, so instead of talking to each other... Can I just guess that this was the birth of mime as we know it? <laughs> oh, not, not yet. They've got way more tricks up their sleeves. Scenes were performed instead of between two people, between a person and a dog. And then you just kind of imagine what the dog was saying back to you. Uh, between a person and someone else who was off stage, oh, because then it didn't count wow. as dialogue. So you just have people hollering stuff from off stage. Long soliloquies. Oh, it was amazing. That's basically the birth of stand-up, isn't it? And you're not far <laughs> off. So you can just imagine the National Theatre of France getting more and more irate. And at this point, they managed to get all speech on stage banned in 1707. <laughs> So the Italians responded by singing. Okay. So that was outlawed as well. (laughs) And kind of these these lawsuits climbed and climbed. At one point, the Royal Theatre of France Mm. hired bailiffs to go and burn down the (laughs) theatres. Like, this is how seriously they took this threat. Yeah. But the Italian theatre just would not die. At one point, when they couldn't speak or sing on stage, Mm. they had the lines written on scrolls that they would (laughs) throw into the audience, and whoever caught it had to stand up and read whatever it said on the paper. Oh, wow. With the actor on stage miming along. Why aren't we doing that today? Yeah. Or lines would be chanted or sung by the entire audience. It it was the pantomime thing. You'd drop down the lyrics on a huge canvas at the back of the stage. Ah. Um, then they'd sing it to a popular tune, and that's how you get the plot across. Oh, wow. This is one of my favourite stories of ingenuity and joy in the face of adversity, and mm. I've been thinking about it a lot over these last couple of weeks, seeing the way music is being made. How come? What spurred this thought? Well, I'll tell you what hasn't. Because <laughs> there have been lots of quarantined responses. I mean, I know you've seen Gal. Gaddo's Imagine. Uh, that one I haven't, actually. I've seen a variety of people doing quarantine stuff. Okay, well, I'm so happy to be the one to give you the terrible news. I guess in a spirit of togetherness or opportunism or naivety, 
she had a bunch of her very big celebrity friends. They sang Imagine and she kind of cut between videos of Jimmy Fallon and probably Brad Pitt and stuff on each line. <laughs> and they were all just kind of singing it into their phone. Right. I tell you what it was, because I've watched it a few times. A combination between the poorly executed song and also the fact that when you record into your phone, a lot of the time you're looking down into it, just made it the most patronizing, oh, the most wow. painfully parochial thing I've ever seen. These multi-millionaires being like, have some John Lennon, you lucky little peasant. <laughs> It's like, hello down there. It, yeah, it was awful. <laughs> it was just awful. Actually, I should say, the incredible jazz music theory YouTuber Charles Cornell took this video unedited mm. and actually harmonised it, put a piano and backing vocals and I think drums. Oh, wow. And just found a way to kind of put all the key changes in. Yeah. <laughs> oh, because oh, they were all singing it in different keys. They're all singing it in unrelated oh, keys. I think wow. from memory, we start in oh. C major, then D major, then E major, then F sharp major, then A major. Like, and he's... Oh, I feel the magnetic draw of YouTube. <laughs> one, of, one, of the, one of the funniest things... I must see if I can find the link for this because I haven't heard, heard it in ages. Was Flanders and Swan, the pianist, was that Flanders, wasn't it? I can never remember which was which, but wonderful people. He did one comedy song with a, uh, a soprano. Okay. Where the idea was that the soprano was singing an aria and keeps going to the wrong notes and he keeps going through these astonishing modulations to catch up with her. <laughs> 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 oh, we are giving ourselves our fair share of work finding links after this episode. So, yeah, so your mind has been cast into this world of ingenuity in the face of adversity. Thank you so much for, for linking this together better than I ever could. Because <laughs> Radio 1's got a charity live lounge single of some Foo Fighters song, which I'm sure will be fine. Yeah. But, you know, if I had a penny for every charity single that the BBC has put out, then the money would not be going where it should. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Instead, I'm talking about at-home live-streamed concerts, which I have got absolutely obsessed with. Wow, cool. Well, it's a rich time for it now, yeah. Everyone's doing it. It's magnificent to see. Like, I've done a lot of live music, and it's there's so many restrictions in there. Mm. You know, unless you are the headliner of a fairly major event at a well-established venue, there's going to be corners cut mm. on the sound design, on the monitoring. Mm. There's a way that music has to be presented to hold attention in that kind of huge setting. This is why I think sofa sounds became so popular when it first emerged. Did, did you ever come across this? I've not come across this one. Sofa sounds is a concert promoter that does concerts in London and LA. I think they've got a New York chapter. It's in people's living rooms. And by people's, I do mean penthouse owners. These are normally quite nice living rooms. Right. And they do fully acoustic, short formish concerts. So it's a little bit like a tiny desk thing, but in people's flats. Ex exactly that. Except they don't get the really top performers. You say that. Katy Perry has done a sofa sounds. I'm talking about the creme de la creme of acoustic guitar players. <laughs> Hey, that was a baritone ukulele. Thank you very much. Actually, it was Laura Marling's ukulele, which she might want back. But mm -hmm. anyway. She never washed it again. <laughs> These true at-home concerts. Yeah. I, I've picked a few of my favourites just to share. Now, you are, I'm sure, familiar with Neil Young. 
Yes, country crooner. Well, not country really, but just gentle. Well, he's a kind of a pioneer of delivering music, his music in lots of different forms. Now, how do you mean? For example, he did that record with Symphony Orchestra accompaniment. Yeah. That he did with Al Schmidt. And he also did the one with Jack Black's recording booth studio. Wait, really? I missed that. Well, there used to be this thing that you could do where you could basically walk into a booth, mm. a little bit like a photo booth. Mm. It would basically record straight to disc, then and there, and give you the disc. It was a novelty thing. Oh, wow. And Jack Black found one of these things and restored it as well as could possibly be done. <laughs> and Neil Young recorded an album in it. That's kind of gorgeous. Literally, it's him sitting in this little booth with his guitar, <laughs> recording absolutely live and unadulterated. I really love that. That sounds magnificent. So, okay, what he's got for us now is just about the most wholesome thing you can imagine. He calls it Neil Young Fireside Sessions. Oh, right. And... I don't think I can describe it any better than he does, which is down-home production, a few songs, a little time together. Log cabin, sleeping dog. His dogs are there. <laughs> there you go. It's just filmed by his wife, and it's him just taking a bit of time. So that's bloody lovely. And that's not a concert you could ever buy tickets to. You're right. This whole thing is a kind of quiet revolution going on, I think. It's exciting. And God knows how it ever could become a commercial model that actually supports artists who do it. Mm. God knows how anyone could ever emerge in this scene. But it is exciting, some of the stuff that's actually being made. Yeah. I mean, everyone's doing these kind of at-home things. Yes. The most impressive ones to me, though, just from a logistical point of view, are the classical ones. Okay, interesting. Okay, so I'm going to give you two candidates and you tell me which one you think is more ill-advised slash impressive. Okay. There's a concert violinist who is setting up these living room live concerts, which are chamber concerts. Yeah. With everyone standing at least two metres apart. <sighs> wow. So so a very small ensemble fills quite a large room. Yeah. I, I can't imagine any way I would less like to play music <laughs> than being, you know, 15 metres as the crow flies from the leader. Yeah. But they're doing it. Well, that's a bit like a string group overdub session. <laughs> You know, there's that old studio trick where you'd set up a string quartet mm. and you'd mic them up as if they were a string orchestra and then you'd just move them back a couple of metres <laughs> and then move them back a couple of metres again <laughs> and track it up to make it sound like it was a string orchestra. And when you get, like, a couple of desks back, they're all like, hello over there! <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard of that trick, but that is just ingenious. I might have to try that, see if I can make a fuller sounding choir. Okay, so we've got option one. What's option two? The Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment... The self-styled bad boys of early music orchestra. Not a crown I think anyone else was particularly fighting for. Mm. But um, they've been playing together on Skype mm. or Zoom or Teams or something. We can attest how difficult it is talking on Skype. Now, yeah. I have no idea how they pulled this off. <laughs> well, I was thinking about this because the real problem with that kind of stuff is the back and forth. Right. Now, if they're all recording in their own rooms, which I assume they are, mm. and as long as they're all being fed the conductor waving his arms about, and they follow the conductor... Right, so long as they're not listening to each other. Yeah, then they should all perform at the same time. And so then you could take all their recordings, put them together with the video of the Zoom call. Oh. And you should be able to synchronise it. You're right. And if the audio isn't exactly synchronised with some of the videos you see on your Zoom call, that's not really going to matter. No. No, I mean, God, it's early music. Well, yeah. The, the, the tuning is to play for, the timing is quote-unquote free. Well, I mean, it takes about a second and a half for those to speak, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> to be able to pull kicking and screaming a note out of a gut string. It's just, it seems hardly worth the effort. 
Now, this is something that I've wondered about for a while with, with the whole thing of people posting them playing music on YouTube. Mm. And that is that, at what point do we get sick of someone emoting with an acoustic guitar or emoting with a keyboard? And now with all these kind of famous people doing it as well as a kind of a will this do live concert thing. I mean, on the one hand, it's like immediate and intimate, but are we just going to reach saturation with it? Now, okay, but see, that's a very difficult question for me because I'm quite dumb. But also, (laughs) when was Elvis? And then when was Conway Twitty before him and the, the bluegrass crooners? And then you go back before, you have the Spanish serenades. Someone emoting with a guitar doesn't seem to want to die. Yeah. When is John Dowland? That's 17th century. I mean, the difficulty is that there's a homogenization that occurs when it gets streamed through a YouTube thing. Right. The window between you of the YouTube experience or the streaming experience might homogenize it all. I'm excited for that because I think that's when these musicians have to get interested in cinema. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. I'm most interested in situations where people go, okay, everyone's bashing a few chords on a guitar. What can I do to make this something different and something perhaps that is uniquely suited to the video medium? And yet, producible on a mass scale, there's... Mm. Two YouTube creators who I really, really rate, Bill Wirtz and Mark Rabier. And Bill Wirtz makes these incredibly carefully crafted, well-animated acid trips of videos okay. with acid jazz chords, and they're brilliant. They take him about six months each. <laughs> yes. And Mark Rabier wears silk kimonos and improvises live-looped funk songs that are about two and a half minutes long. And the video is him doing that. Yeah. Therefore, a two and a half minute video takes about two and a half minutes to produce. Yeah. One of them has a channel that's been dead for more than a year because the stress of creating content got to them. And the other (laughs) one is doing just fine. Mm. And I think it's something that I definitely have often overlooked, that it's not just about what do you want to make, it's how sustainable is it going to be to keep making this? I know. Uh, People are expecting that regularity, that constant interaction, as opposed to just waiting for something to be delivered. Yes. This is a little bit part of this whole culture of don't get it ready and then put it out. Put it out and then get it ready. Yes, which I don't like at all, but yes. (laughs) I mean, that's where I think we're already kind of dinosaurs. Mm. And I, I find myself trying to fight this myself. This urge to make it all cut and dried before I put it out. Before you show it to anyone. Yeah. And I find it difficult to fight that because it's totally off <laughs> off brand for me. I just don't know quite how to do it. <laughs> but other people do it really successfully. They just chuck stuff out and it's a bit rubbishy, but it's regular and there's something in there. Yeah, yeah. It's a brave way to be. And it frightens my old Luddite heart. Well, I mean, also, it's more responsive as well. Mm. That's the thing about that very regular interaction, is that, you know, if you do stuff where you take a lot of time to do it, there's only a limited opportunity for the people who are using it or consuming it to get back to you and give you feedback and influence the way the content is created. Mm. So are we just being a bit ivory tower and a bit remote? Maybe we are. I wonder if there is some kind of Project Studio Tea Break challenge that we could set ourselves and or each other... <laughs> Oh, okay, right. Something which captures this, it's not perfect, but, you know, get something out on the reg Mm. and share it for the sake of the world desperately needing ageing white men to kind of share (laughs) what they think. I don't know, we we could say that we are each going to put out something. Okay. 
A TikTok. It could even... Oh, my God. That would be the most painful one for me, and so I'm kind of interested in it. Yes, yes. Screw it. Yes. Two TikToks a week. Oh, wow. From when this episode comes out till when the next one comes out. From each of us. Mike, do I have your agreement? Oh, that is bold. Uh, I'm not bold. I just choose to shave my hair. Now, are you in or not? Very swift. Oh, I would like to take you up on that, but I'm just concerned about how much time it's going to take. But then I suppose the whole point is that it shouldn't take time. That's the whole point. Yeah, exactly. You've got it. You've hit the nail on the head. Oh, God, I can feel myself trembling with... At least you've got kids who can talk you through the basics. I'm the youngest person in this house. Literally, we just downloaded it this week. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yep. Okay, we're doing it. Of just something. Of something. Two TikToks. Doesn't matter how long it is. Two TikToks per week. From each of us. And if we can figure out how to have a Project Studio Tea Break TikTok account <laughs> that they all go to, I think this is the way forward, Mike. Okay, so we're going to try and get... This feels <laughs> horrible. I don't like this at all. <laughs> I don't either. Okay, so this is the challenge then. Let's firm this up. It's going to be a Project Studio Tea Break TikTok <laughs> account. <laughs> the much-awaited, hugely requested. I'll just put all the details in the show notes so that people can find them. God, what have I got myself into? <laughs> and I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to say that this is dedicated to our two new patrons. Mm, yes. Making the quote-unquote work we do possible. <laughs> I mean, they're almost sub-channels. We have the Barry sub-channel and the Nick sub-channel. We could each be TikToking for one of them and then the person who gets most likes. Oh, yeah. I like it. Oh, I'm getting interested now. You had that adversarial element. And I'm all over its point. God, you're as competitive as me. This is terrible. <laughs> this is all going to end in tears. Now, I wonder, John, whether you share this impression as an experienced director of amateur choirs that the tenor section is almost always the sticking point. It, I mean, it's my feeling that when one is lucky enough to have a tenor section in an amateur choir, they kind of write their own checks. <laughs> If that's how they want that bit to go, that's how that bit goes. You immediately put your finger on, on one of the problems, which is chronic understaffing. Absolutely. I mean, on the door of my basement room where I do all my work. Dungeon, yeah. I have a sign that says, Man Cave. And the subtitle is Manly Men Doing Manly Things. <laughs> and basically, one of the fundamental problems with the tenor section is that manly men don't like singing tenor. It's so, so true. There is no way to gruffly, macholy sing tenor. <laughs> you know, I, I love singing tenor, but maybe that says something about me. And indeed about me. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Flamboyant little ponces. But no, you're absolutely right. And especially in amateur choirs where the confidence maybe isn't there. It's impossible to sing a tenor line without confidence, which may be actually something you're coming to as well. I mean, it's partly because of the understaffing. Mm -hmm. It's partly because there are so few of them. It's partly because the notes can be quite high and difficult to sing. Mm -hmm. And there's that risk of it like yodeling or your note cracking or you're not sure whether to go into falsetto or sing it with proper chest voice when it gets around your break region. It's so true. If you drop off the bottom of a 
bass range. If you hit a note that's too low, it just doesn't come out. There's nothing mm. hugely embarrassing. It's just kind of a hissy silence. Mm, mm. It's not quite true of a high B, is it? <laughs> no, <laughs> you can rapidly move into yodeling. Yes, and and so you you have a less of a feeling of safety as a tenor because there are fewer of you, and you've got to expose the top. Yeah, and there's also this universal kind of psychological dynamic in any section in a choir, certainly of any amateur choir, where fundamentally most of the singers are waiting for the one or two who really know what they're doing to sing, and then a fraction of a second later, or they're following their body language, and then the rest will come in as well. Absolutely, yes. And so there are these linchpin members of every section who are the people who really know when to sing and what to sing, and everyone else is following them. Yeah, and they will carry the section with them. And from time to time, you'll get someone who's one of these singers who sings confidently in the wrong place, and the rest of the section follows in dutifully. (laughs) Yes, all the charisma and all the natural leadership and not quite as much of the practice. (laughs) And so this kind of person who can lead the section is needed probably more than anywhere in the tenor section. (laughs) Now, as we've mentioned before, I am a tenor. Mm -hmm. And courtesy of a childhood spent singing daily in church choirs, I can pretty much sight-read anything put in front of me. A very useful skill in a very small set of specific circumstances. (laughs) Indeed. And also, I've sung in so many choirs that I just get bored of having to rehearse things because people aren't on the ball. Mm. So I'm just in a habit of whenever I sing in a choir to sing completely without fear. Right. Just to kind of drag the rest of the section behind me so we don't have to spend ages rehearsing. Mm Mm-hmm. It's for this reason that I have often found myself like parachuted in at the last moment to prop up a choir's tenor section. The fixer, like the wolf in Pulp Fiction. You kind of rock up for the dress rehearsal and stay on for the concert. It's that kind of deal. Right. Which brings us to the subject of this month's face palm. Oh, good. This already sounds delicious. Now, this is one, it's possible you may even have experienced yourself. I'm not sure. Okay. But this was about... 15 years ago, when I was doing some cover teaching at a sixth form college in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, as the end of year concert, the college, which had quite a lot of musicians, had a great music department, brought in all the parents and friends and relations Mm. to put on a performance of Durufle's Requiem, which is a fabulous piece. That it is, a real stonker of a sing-along. And as usual, the tenor section was understaffed. Was slightly svelte, (laughs) a little thin on the ground. And so the director of music tapped me up to come in to do the usual riding in on a white horse and <laughs> leading the tenor section to victory. <laughs> Just the potential for face palm is building and building. It's wonderful. So I, I turned up in the dress rehearsal and it was like full orchestra, massive tears of like everyone and their dog had come along to sing in the chorus <laughs> except in the tenor section. Yep. And so not only was the usual thing of having to lead the few tenors into battle, but it was like totally outnumbered as well by all the other sections. <laughs> So you have 50 sopranos and about three tenors. Oh, God, a true underdog story. Yeah. So already it's like, okay, you know, you need to ramp up the confidence level, ramp up the volume level just to compete in this situation. And in a big echoey church, of course, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so um, the choir master, while the orchestra were kind of getting ready and tuning and getting ready to do stuff, was rehearsing some 
difficult corners of the choir parts. Okay. And in particular, uh, there was a bit in the third movement, the Domino Jesu Christi, which starts off with a long and contemplative section with a, like an alto solo melody. Mm-hmm. And then it goes then into a fortissimo, or a forte, but for the tenors, obviously fortissimo to balance <laughs> with the rest of them, full chorus sing-along. Mm. You know, you, you come in straight away. Now, the problem is... The transition between the contemplative alto phrase finishing and this chorus starting is this whacking great timpani hit. And I'm pretty sure from memory that the orchestra weren't playing at that point because they were just rehearsing the choir corners. Oh no. And of course, it means that when the conductor's conducting it, he conducts that the timpani player comes in on the downbeat Mm. and then everyone else comes in on the second beat. Okay. (laughs) And I'd forgotten that there was this timpani role that wasn't there because he wasn't playing. And so... He sweeps up his hands and brings them down in a grand sweep. Right. And I come in fortissimo at the top of my range. <laughs> solo. In front of about 300 people. <laughs> yeah. Leave it off! <laughs> and basically everyone dissolved. Oh, beautiful. I can't remember whether I got a round of applause there. <laughs> <laughs> All I can say about that is that, thank God, I came to the dress rehearsal. Right, there you go. Thank God this was not literally the performance moment. That must have sounded huge. And if I'm not mistaken, that was in Our Lady of the English Martyrs, right? Yes. Which, for anyone not familiar with the Canterbridgean environs, is a huge booming (laughs) church. And, you know, there is the sound that Mike made, but you have to also include for this story to have its full truth impact, the sound that the building made back. And I guarantee you it swirled around like rich cream in a black coffee. It just percolated through every single... We had a good six seconds to appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. At least... That's the place where if you drop a pen, they'll be hearing about it for a week. (laughs) So reaching once more into our apoplectically overflowing (laughs) mailbag. Second bag of mail. Yes. We have a question from Mr. Wilbur Harrison. Hello, Mr. Wilbur Harrison. From Connecticut. Ooh, Connecticut indeed. Although he spelt it wrong. He spelt it as Connecticut. (laughs) I don't know what that's about. Well, that's the colonies for you. Yeah. <laughs> we never spell things wrong in this country. Absolutely not, because as soon as we spell it that way, it's the right spelling. Yes. Anyway. So, his question short and sweet. Let's hear it. It is. Gaffer tape. Is there anything it can't do? I had a phase when I was about 15 where I got obsessed with gaffer tape and I guess I'd seen a picture of someone with a suit of gaffer tape clothes. Oh, wow. And I wanted to make myself a waistcoat out of gaffer tape. Wow. It was around this time that I realised that gaffer tape is not cheap. No. And that I was and still am a big lad. (laughs) (laughs) And the gaffer required to circumnavigate my body as many times as would be required to make a waistcoat was cost prohibitive. It never happened and it's an eternal regret of mine that that element of gaffer tape is yet to be tapped. So maybe it can't do a sartorial. Okay, if we say what can gaffer tape do on a budget, then yes, it can't do sartorial extravaganzas. I mean, surely it is only a Google search away to find the gaffer tape suit. I'm going to counter that one. I'm going to say that if we're asking what gaffer tape can't do, it can do suits, it can do hats, it can do haute couture, (laughs) or however or not you pronounce that. So gaffer tape can do that. 
What do you use gaffer for, Mike? What's your relationship with the gaff? It is the thing that you always turn to when nothing else works, pretty much. It's true. It is the solution to most studio problems. <laughs> yep. But I've had difficulty with it holding duvets up. <laughs> now, just for a iota of um, context here... <laughs> Why have you been gaffer taping duvets to your ceiling? Well, it's acoustic duvets, of course. <laughs> you giggle. I have four session duvets that I take with me. Location duvets. They are audio duvets. That's magnificent. And the, I use them on pretty much every session I do, in one way or other. Right. Even if it's only for a stress nap underneath the mixing desk. <laughs> I have once used them to overnight somewhere. <laughs> My my question starts to become, is there anything you can't do with a session duvet? Maybe that was it. Maybe that was the problem. It's like you bring two like superheroes together and they can't coexist. Mm -hmm. They're so good at doing everything on their own. You bring them together and they kind of cancel each other out. <laughs> Too much power in one place. And that's what's happening with the gaffer taped duvets. This is the working theory. I've had to put little um, carabiners in the corners of my duvets to hang them on things because whenever I try and gaffer tape them on something, the gaffer tape comes off. Oh my goodness. I mean, normally you're fighting to get gaffer tape off stuff. I know, I know, it's true, but duvets it just kind of pulls away from. I mean, blankets it does a bit. And carpets, I mean, you know it sticks to carpets. <laughs> That's very true. Okay, so we have one thing, mm. which is hold soft furnishings to your ceiling. Yeah. If you are one of the relatively few people who wants your soft furnishings on your ceiling, <laughs> gaffer tape may not be the way forward for you. Musically, I mean, I've used it to retune a drum before. Okay. A kind of animal skin drum that's normally tuned with a lot of ropes, and we didn't have time to unweave it and do it again. Ah. So just twisted a couple of bits of gaffer into kind of mm. bits of string and then used more gaffer to tape them really hard down to the wooden body of the drum, and we got the tuning up to where it needed to be. Impressive. Used it on a saxophone once. <laughs> <laughs> it's all coming out now. Yeah, now that I think about it. Was it to cover that annoying hole at the front <laughs> i always have problems with that <laughs> yeah terrible noise don't put a microphone anywhere near it i prefer to treat the problem at source <laughs> what just over the mouth of the saxophonist yep <laughs> works with vocalists too i mean that's the thing it's more general purpose i feel like there's a studio urban legend i don't know if you have any first-hand reports of this mm. that when pianists are being overly fancy a smart producer will duct tape some of their fingers together <laughs> Oh, God, I feel that's part of the shared collective consciousness. It's studio lore, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did hear about a session drummer who liked his headphones to be really, really, really loud. Hmm. So they got a pair of like industrial ear defenders and fitted speaker drivers into them because he was half deaf anyway. Okay. And the problem was that they kept slipping off his head. So they gaffer taped them to his head. <laughs> and then midway through a take, he suddenly throws the sticks away and starts screaming and trying to tear these headphones off. And it turns out that because the headphones were being driven at such high power, they were heating up hmm. and burning his ears. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> God, that's pretty rock and roll as it goes. Yeah. Which gives us yet another subcategory of things you can but probably shouldn't do with gaffer tape. Now, <laughs> this feels like a big bucket. Yes. With an awful lot inside it. Yes, that's true. I mean, I wonder whether there are things that gaffer tape is too sticky for. <laughs> I mean, I would say lots of things. I've had it pulling up splinters off wood floors. Really? Yeah. Oh, no. Hopefully nothing too beautiful and preserved or ancient and listed. Well, it wasn't then. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, not anymore. If you get blocks of parquet stuck to it, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Memories. 
trying to think in a musical context if you had the things about your person and gaffer tape and had to make an instrument oh wow because I'm, I'm not convinced you could get it uniform and tight enough to really resonate as a skin mm. what would you make do you think you could suspend a strap between two fixed objects to make a long like upright bass style string Oh, okay. How would you fix the tension, though? <laughs> Just by pulling on it, I think. You'd have to tune once and then ignore. <laughs> ah, you are a violist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ouch. Oh, catty has. <laughs> I'm hold beneath the waterline. <laughs> oh, wait, no, I've got a better punchline. You can edit this in before. <laughs> no, oi. <laughs> I need this. Spoken like a true violist. There we go. We got that one clean. Okay, so, yes, I could see that. I could see someone who's tried to make washboard bases in the past. These are ones which are hand-tensioned. They're impossible to play. Yeah. Like, you can work very hard and get two believable notes so long as everyone else is out of tune as well. Well, you do have a kind of a checkered history when it comes to making <laughs> instruments. My Lutherism is not under debate here. <laughs> Nails are perfectly appropriate tuning pegs. Stand by that to the dead eye. Yeah, I mean, you can't eat it. <laughs> No, but you could probably use it to, like, scale a fish. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Been watching a lot of MasterChef recently. Oh, I see. Right, right. No spoilers, but the person you want to win totally wins. <laughs> um, what else could you... I mean, you can't... Okay, how would you write music with gaffer tape? How would you use it to help you compose? Oh, well, I mean, uh, surely if people are making bits of music by shooting things with air guns, I mean, the capability is there right from the outset. But give me a how. What's the process? <sighs> okay. Um, oh, I've got it. Okay. You uh, get strips of gaffer tape mm -hmm. and you string them across a door frame okay. at regular intervals mm -hmm. so that you've got about a width of gaffer tape between each strip of gaffer tape. Okay. And you open your front door and you leave a light on in the room that has the gaffer tape over the door mm. and wait overnight. And then wherever the bugs have landed, <sighs> all you do is just treat those as staves. Amazing. You see? This is grisly and magnificent. And I'm going to go ahead and say, if anyone has a bit of time on their hands, as a few people do... Mm. Say 15 seconds. Say 15 seconds. And <laughs> puts this together and gives some kind of performance of what comes out. Of the result. I will gift them a six-month Patreon subscription. Yeah. That's my word of honour. Mm. It does have to be two-hour show, though. You can't go follow some other cooler, younger podcast. Six months of having to listen to even more of us. Second prize, a year. <laughs> <laughs> So it comes time for the great scone of this podcast episode to receive the jam of the jam section mm. before the cream of the, um, I guess, the ending. I mean, I don't know. Do we really want to have a cream segment? <laughs> I don't think we do. And moving swiftly on, <laughs> we've thrown the scone away. We've thrown it into the sun for giving us impure thoughts. And instead... Well, what were you thinking? Impure thoughts. We've come back to toast. <laughs> we've gone back to old, reliable toast. And, and here comes the spreading. Well, that's a fine simulacrum of a piece of toast. I'm pretty proud of it. That is good. Any guesses? Um, 
I wonder whether it might be a deck of cards? It is indeed. Oh, wow! My God, I actually guessed it! Well played, Mike Senior! I mean, to be fair, I had a bit of a hint because I could see just the top of your hand and I thought, right. oh, that looks a bit like a card riffling hand look. So I, I can't claim to be entirely psychic with it. <laughs> but, um... but still, yes, indeed it is. Uh, if you guessed that at home as well, we owe you £50, <laughs> each of you. So congratulations on that. To claim your prize, please just join our Patreon and wait six to eight months. <laughs> we'll have that with you, certainly. It's my turn and my privilege to be on the jam for this month mm. because it means I get to share with all you wonderful people Maxo. Maxo is a Brooklyn-based artist who makes 8-bit music. Wow. It all sounds a bit confusing, Amy, and it's just Funky as sin. Yes. Like, it's so, so brilliantly lo-fi and, and tasty. I'll be honest, I did a fair bit of research. There's not that much written about this guy, but mm. what I have found is that the first album, the album that I sent you the track Social Science off of, yeah. was actually a through-scoring of their entire university campus. So there is a track for every place within the university campus. Oh, God, I see. That's why it's social sciences. Right? <laughs> it's for every faculty. Every single faculty. Oh, wow. And there was a plan. I cannot confirm whether it ever came to fruition, but there was a plan for a location-based app which would fade <laughs> between the different tracks depending on where you were on the campus. Oh, wow. That'd be a funky tour, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it just? You could spot people on that particular audio tour, couldn't you? <laughs> you could. They'd be doing the characteristic funk dance moves. You know, there was that certain era in the 70s. There's a type of dancing that is funk dancing that kind of seems to involve... It's a lot of moving backwards, isn't it? Now, I'll be honest, I can't really visualise funk dancing, but I think I do know what your first TikTok is now. <laughs> so, congratulations on getting that squared away quite so fast, you know, well in advance of publication. Given when we're recording this, you've got like a week to perfect your funk dancing moves. I could not be more excited for that. Um, so the song is Social Science. The album is Level Up Purchase. And all of the sounds are pulled from old entertainment systems. So the SNES, the NES, the Mega Drive. The SID chip. Don't even know what that one is, but probably. It was the one that was in the Commodore 64. Oh, really? In that case, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, you used to be able to buy the SID chip actually as a sound module. Really? That was MIDI addressable and had proper audio outs. Genius. Called the SID station now that I remember. Oh, Okay. What appears to have happened now is that some incredibly generous people, among them Dave Harris and Sleepy Time Jesse and Willie SS, mm. have emulated these sound systems. Okay. And made them into entirely digital modules. Oh! For, for the most part, free. Oh, wow. So you can make this music. So these are like VST instruments? Yes. Yeah. Oh my god! Wow! Right? Oh, that's so cool! All I want to do is try and make some, like, funky old video game music now. That's so cool. So, I've been jamming on this sound for quite a while. Mm. I love it to pieces. Part of what I love about it is that it feels like it's impossible to mix badly. <laughs> I don't know what that is about the 8-bit sound, but everything just kind of sits together. You put it all in at roughly the same volume. You just set the levels and it's done. Yeah, I, I'm not thinking, God, if only they'd compressed a bit here and a bit of reverb would really glue stuff together. No, you just put it in a bucket. But I would love to hear you as a mix engineer. I would love to hear your thoughts. You know what? You're absolutely right on that. 
it does feel like it's kind of mix-proof to some extent. <laughs> right? I mean, there never was a mixing stage when these things were on a SID chip or whatever it was on the, the snares. No. And it was all done on the way in with the programming. You had no control on the way out. Mm-hmm. There aren't many systems of distributing and creating music that give the creator that control over the end product at the outset. Right. I mean, you've got that and maybe play a piano. <laughs> <laughs> or like those people who do general MIDI files. But even there, you can't guarantee what's going to play back the general MIDI file, can you? No. Whereas with a SID chip, it's just for the SID chip. And so that's what it's going to sound like. Yeah. And when they were integrated in standalone game platforms like the Game Boy, you even knew the speaker that it was going to come out of. Yes. I mean, that's one of the things I really like about it, actually, hearing what he's done, is that I was playing it through my studio monitors, and it sounds so much better when you hear the whole frequency range of the stuff. You're getting proper bass and proper punch out of it. Right. It's like, wow, this sounds really good. (laughs) You know, the tinniness you associate with those kinds of synth sounds are really partly a product of the fact that they were always coming through a tiny little speaker. I mean, is it not also something to do with the bit crunching? The fact that you were at such a low bit rate. That, to me, is part of the appeal of it. Right. That is probably the reason, I would say, why it mixes so well together. Right. Because the grubbier sounds like that are easier just to mix together. They have a kind of a built-in blending thing because mm. they're a bit distorted and a bit fuzzed. And that adds some common noise and some common distortion and some interaction, a bit of crosstalk and stuff. And all these things blend it together without you having to do anything. I could absolutely see that being true. That They have this common element of the sound that helps them glue together. And there's also just that rich nostalgia. <laughs> I mean, I just love this kind of sound. But this comes down to the fact that when I was a kid, my brother had a Commodore 64. Amazing. When it was still the thing to have. It was that and the ZX Spectrum. Mm. And because he was a bit of a computer guy, but he's gone into computers now, Mm. he was one of the very few people, I think, in the world ever, (laughs) who bought a floppy disk drive for it. Ooh. At the time when the floppy disks were, you know, the size of your of your mouse mat. And it meant that all the games that you would originally have loaded on cassette, mm-hmm. you could load in a comparatively swift 15 seconds on disk. And so we spent really much too much time <laughs> playing games on the Commodore 64. We'd often be like tag teaming games like flight simulators and things. Oh, good times. So I just have such nostalgia for that style of music that is so restrained in terms of the mechanics of how you put it together. You really have to think carefully about how you use the resources that are available. You know, it's true. There is an amazing YouTube channel that actually goes into the computer science of how this music is made, called 8-Bit Music. And, you know, the restrictions that these programmers were under of how many instruments they could have at a time, of how and when program changes were allowed to happen. Or how many notes, if any, were allowed to happen at the same time. Yes, yeah, yeah. What the timing resolution was. Completely. Whether you could make it sound like more instruments were playing just by swapping between them quick enough. It's kind of like you're hacking these incredibly limited things to try and get more out of them than they were capable of doing. Than they were going to want to do by themselves. Mm. It's brilliant music. I wonder if another part of its mix-proofness, as you call it, I like that, (laughs) is something that Niels Fram talks about a lot, Tom Adams talks about a lot. Mm. The fact that electronic music 
isn't trying to evoke a place, hmm. isn't trying to evoke space or context in the way that any acoustic music will. Yeah. You know, as you know, we imagine the room. We imagine the people's position within the room. And our memories of acoustic events we've experienced. Absolutely. You know, with this, it is literally just the sound. Yeah. This isn't a recording of an event. This is the event. You are hearing the purest version. And it sets its own parameters. Yeah. It's like you can't say, oh, that Sid Chip bass doesn't sound like it's a proper Sid Chip bass. <laughs> it's just a Sid Chip bass and it could be anything it likes. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is why voice is the most difficult thing usually to produce. It's because we have such a clear idea of how it should sound. Mm. Whereas something like a synth or electric guitar. Right, right. There's no standard sound for any of that kind of stuff. So you can get away with mixing, like like completely carving holes in that in your mix to make room for your vocal, whereas you can't do it the other way around, really. No. It's almost as if we've kind of come all the way around to music concrete, however many years later, <laughs> that sounds are just themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, so it's philosophically engaging, for sure. Mm. But it's also just bop-worthy. Oh, yeah. I also want to point out something, just because you mentioned it earlier in the episode. On that album, Social Sciences is, is the track I sent you. But the next track on the album is called Natural Science. Okay. And I want you to just have a real quick click on that. Okay, uh, I did have it open. Let me just open it again. And note its length compared to social science. <laughs> okay. They're identical. Is one backwards? No, not backwards. Upside down. <laughs> okay, let's have a look. Let's have a look. All right, here's social science. Let's play a bit of that again. Cool. Hit me with some natural science. Okay, here we go. It's really cool, isn't it? Oh, hang it's on. Just, it's just reorchestrated it. This is what you were saying. It's like the rehooking. It's your idea. It's the rehooking. Oh, wow. My brain just exploded. <laughs> Do we have anyone to thank for these golden microphones that we're talking into? Well, um, it's funny you should ask. Um... <laughs> this is uh, a company called... Uh, it's a company called... I forgot it was my turn to come up with the sponsor this month, <laughs> Limited. This is um, uh, Reverse Virtualization Technologies. Mm -hmm. Now, you've heard of these plugins that can emulate loudspeakers over headphones? Absolutely, I have. You have your headphones on and it's meant to sound like you're in Abbey Road or that you're supposed to be like listening on your own speakers or on you know NS10s or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, it feels to me that people who are normally working on speakers really need to have the option to try things out on lots of headphones. So this is special software that's designed to emulate the sound of headphones over speakers. <laughs> and it gives you a, a range that of... Is a range of different uh, headphones <laughs> to choose from uh, by using clever phase-cancelling technology to get rid of the crosstalk between the channels. Naturally. Filters off the bass and pans things much wider than usual. Now, I've been reading about this. They have, if I'm not mistaken, a very exciting third quarter offering in the mm. form of some proprietary hardware. These are basically, um, well, they look like two little cups that clip onto your ears, mm. which can, with just a little flick of a button, be used to emulate the discomfort of any different type <laughs> of headphone. That kind of bruised inner ear from those little plastic earbuds you've got at the bus station. They ship with a variety of different pads. and You've got the, the sticky vinyl ones. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You've got the ones that are a bit too hard, the ones that are slightly broken. <laughs> the ones that are flaking off and you occasionally get electrocuted from the interior. <laughs> those foam ear covers that aren't thick enough and you can feel the plastic through them. Oh, oh, 
wow, I felt that. <laughs> Those were words you could feel. <laughs> and then there's the ratchet on the headband that sets the pressure. Oh, I can't wait to take my headphones off. So thanks to Reverse Virtualization Technologies for uh, supporting this month's episode. Mike, can I make a request? Mm. What I really want, and maybe this is a Patreon special, <laughs> I want to know the process yeah. that you just inhabited to come up with that on the spot. Because <laughs> I saw you looking at every single corner of the room you were in, and I can only assume that there was an object or a couple of objects that made you just go this. <laughs> can, can, can you step-by-step step me through it? I would like to take more credit for this than I, uh, I'm due. <laughs> okay. But the thing I was looking for was the title that I'd forgotten to make up. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> and I'd already kind of woodshedded an idea and thought, oh... Is that idea going to work? And I hadn't got round to checking whether it would. So, I, so we were up at the seat of our pants. But you you took it and you you rode those wheels right off. It was easy to ride on. Great fun to hop aboard. So if you have a question for the Master Breakers, a comment, anything you'd like to say, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash PSTB tweets, on facebook.com at facebook.com forward slash PSTB books. And do we have an email now, Mike? Yes, we do. It is tbreak at projectstudiotbreak.com. And of course, if you would like even more of this nonsense, <laughs> we have plenty more where this came from. And it's all on our Patreon site. Plenty to go around. We have a little bit of local Rickstorf history. Mm -hmm. We have little women and evil smells. <laughs> we have the wisdom of buskers. So if you'd like to find out what on earth those are about, head over to our Patreon, support this independent podcast, and we look forward to seeing you there. Where can we find the Patreon? That's at patreon.com slash Project Studio Tea Break. Right, so listeners, that is four different ways you can get in touch with us. At this stage, mm -hmm. if we don't hear from you, we can assume it's personal. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, with all that said, thank you for joining us. Oh, is there anything you have to plug? Oh, um, no. Right. My chickens are adorable. <laughs> Let's see, there is Henrietta Tia, Chickberry, and Hen Sola. So my gift to you <laughs> listeners is just those names to think about. Oh, I love that. How about you, Mike? What are you plugging? Uh, just the uh, new Cambridge MT stuff. If you want to head over to the uh, Modulet Library, check out the new Unmastered Mixes there. Uh, get involved. Hopefully there'll be a new forum already up and running. Amazing. Amazing. Get on it. Stay safe. Stay happy. Yeah. To our pets. Cheery bye. Bye. <laughs>